Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to consider the truths of your word. I pray, O Lord, that you would give us understanding by your Holy Spirit, that you would carry the truth to our hearts and that you would set it before us. I pray, O Lord God, that you would uh, just uh, be glorified as we consider the word that you have revealed to us. We thank you. We magnify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. We're considering the perseverance of the saints, and we are drawing to the end of the study, uh, believe it or not. It's been a few weeks, but uh, here's where we have uh, come from. The last time we finished talking about this second to last point there, which is salvation is conditional. And basically what we did is we looked at all of the verses that uh, talk about salvation uh, kind of being conditional based on our response or our faith or lack of faith thereof and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and this is really important. As a matter of fact, we cannot consider what Scripture has to say without seeing it as um, an exhortation to our wills. In other words, the whole New Testament, the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible is about encouraging us to make choices for God, to have faith in Him, to trust in Him, to act, to, to speak in a way. We, we, we are just faced with choices before us. That, that, that is the whole exhortation of Scripture. That is the exhortation of preaching uh, when we preach or teach or when we study the Bible. It is to encourage us to be more like Christ. So it, all such encouragement is a, an appeal to us, to our will, to make a certain choice. So um, we look at salvation. We see some of the conditional aspects of it. And if you remember what I have been sharing all along is that these conditional uh, aspects of salvation or the exhortations of Scripture are true appeals to us. They are not veiled. It is not some kind of fake appeal, and there's nothing that uh, we can do because God has already predetermined where, we're, where we've come and where we're going and whether we're saved or not saved. Um, it's, it's not that. These are true appeals to our will to make choices that honor Christ. That's, that's uh, the heart of it. And so we see a cooperative uh, effort in this thing called the Christian life. Uh, God moves and he has made us like we are and we are to move as well and we are to choose. So that is salvation is the, the, the topic. Salvation is con- conditional. Tonight I want to move on and this is going to be our last point the verses that talk about the security of salvation. So when we talk about salvation being secure, we're talking about how salvation is permanent. There is this thing called the perseverance of the saints, which means that as saints or children of God, we will persevere all the way to the end. There is the security of the believer, the assurance of the believer. Because we are secure in him, we can have assurance as well. So this is really important because assurance is part of our hope. And we have hope because of the promise of eternal life that he has given to us. And the promise of eternal life is a true promise that is set before us that we can believe in him. And if we do believe in him, we will have eternal life. We will not perish. Okay, that is the promise of Scripture. And so this is what we mean when we talk about that salvation is secure. Now let me uh, go back to the Old Testament just for a moment and share a story with you, and this is about Joseph. Now, you remember what happened to Joseph, right? Joseph was minding his own business, probably not so much minding his own business. When he was young, he got this coat of many colors from his 
father. It reflected the love that his father had to him. And, and maybe he was a little proud about it. And he had those dreams. And he showed off the coat. And his brothers just got really angry with him. You remember the story, right? You remember the account of Joseph? So they got so angry with him that they decided to kill him. So they put in, in motion the plan to kill Joseph just to get rid of him. They throw him in a pit. They're going to leave him there to die. Reuben, the oldest, he decides, well, you know, they're going to throw him in the pit. I'm going to come back later. I'm going to pull him out. We, I just can't go through with this. But before that all happened, they pulled Joseph out of the pit and they sold him to the traders that were going by, the Midianites or the Ishmaelites. And they were going by and they decided, hey, why do we, why kill him when we can just sell him and get him out of here? And, you know, we won't have his blood on our hands at least. So they did that. They sold Joseph into slavery. They took his colored tunic there. They put some blood of an animal, and they went back to the father, and they said, he is dead, when in reality he had been sold. Now, many years later, Joseph rises through the ranks because he is able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh by the grace of God. He is uh, second in command, and God uses him to provide for basically the world around that area there, including the land of Canaan. He's in Egypt, but the land of Canaan, uh, people were coming. They were uh, uh, selling their things and going to buy grain, which Joseph had planned in Egypt to have extra grain so that they could meet the need of the seven years of famine. So during the course of that, his brothers come. They're confronted with him. They don't recognize him initially, but he reveals himself to them. And once he is revealed to them, they are scared because of what they had done. They had sold him into to slavery. In uh, Genesis chapter 50, it's the last chapter of Genesis, verses 19 through 21, their dad, their father has died, and now they're really afraid. And Joseph says this. This is Genesis 50, 19 through 21. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in the place, or for am I in the place of God? In other words, how can I judge you? But as for you, you meant evil against me when they sold him. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, the point there is that the brothers did something evil and wicked. And they meant it for evil. But God, at the same time, the very same act, meant it for good. So which is it? I mean, was it an evil act or was it a good act? Well, this is, this is where the, the will of man and the brother's evil intent just kind of comes glaring through. What they did was wrong. And the sovereignty of God just kind of intersect over the same event. And remember... In our picture of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, we're not talking about this, you know, where they kind of butt up against each other. You all remember that? Our picture is more of the sovereignty of God is just overarching of everything, and the will of man is a part of that. So it is true sovereignty on the part of God. It is true free will on the part of man. So God's not watching Events unfold and thinking to himself, all right, I wonder what they're going to do. Are they going to kill Joseph or are they going to sell him or what are they going to do to him? You know, I, I got to watch closely to see what, what it is that they do. 
so that when they decide what they're going to do, I can figure out what I'm going to do about it. I mean, to, to think that God is contemplating and watching events unfold like that just seems a little bit ridiculous to us. God is not there watching us, seeing which way we'll go, and then deciding, all right, how am I going to fix this? How am I going to work all things out for good because of this and this and this choice, choices that they have made? No, this is not what God is doing. So there is a sovereign plan of God at work. God meant it for good, and that kind of overarches everything. And yet the brothers, they are fully responsible for the evil, wicked, despicable act that they have done. There is no question about it. They are responsible for it. They are guilty of their sin. So that's where the tension lies. You have the plan of God. You have the choices of man. And they come together at some point, and that's, that's where we can't understand. How, how can it be both? How does it work out like that? That's a little bit more difficult for us to understand. But, as I've been saying as we go through this study, that's the tension we just kind of have to live with as we approach Scripture. So we spent a lot of time, maybe two or three weeks, going through the verses that talk about the salvation, the conditionality of salvation, meaning that uh, we have to choose, we have to believe, we have to have faith, we have to persevere, and, and so on, and it kind of rests upon our shoulders. So that is our part. That is the cooperation element that rests upon us, with us. But there's another side to this that we didn't... We mentioned at the beginning the sovereignty of God. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And that brings us to these other verses that speak of God's... Uh, uh, sovereignty and his uh, his power to keep us with him for all of eternity. And so that's what we want to look at now. We want to look at some of these verses. So as we consider this, the first point here, the, the verses that we're going to look at first, have to do with the power of God. We are, as people of God, protected by God's power. So in other words, God exerts himself. He is powerful. We know that. There's a word that we use. He is omnipotent, right? He is all-powerful. And so, uh, you know, what could we, us pipsqueak people, do to thwart God's power? Well, we don't even come close. Even if we just kind of combine all of our power and all the power of the angels, we just combine all of the creation, the power of the creation, it's still just a little drop in the bucket to the power of God, right? He is all-powerful. And so there is this preservation that God affords us. He is our shield. He is our tower. He is our rock. He is our salvation. Okay, that's the power of God. And so we come and we are held by the power of God. So let's consider some of the verses. First of all, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, he is doing this in this verse, according to his abundant mercy, begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God. All right, this is verse, I think I've gone over to verse 5 here. Who are, kept, who are kept by the power of God through faith. Notice the re- reference to faith here. For salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Now, there are the, the language of this verse is, is uh, focusing on what God has done and what he has given us. So, he has begotten us again. Now, in the Gospel of John, begotten us again is equivalent to what? Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus when he came at night? He has begotten us again. In other words, we are born again. We are born again. And God has done that. He is the one who has caused us to be born again. So by his mercy, he has begotten us again. He has caused us to be born again. And he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now remember, hope is future, right? So we are born again for this living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Of course, you know, this living hope that comes to us is because of the work of Christ. He died and rose again from the dead. And so we obtain this salvation. We are born again when we put our our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is why we spend a lot of time talking about salvation. It is kind of the, the foundation. It is the beginning. It is the starting point of this new life, this hope that he gives to us. So we believe in Jesus. We confess our sins. We ask for his forgiveness. His blood was shed for us. We believe in that. We trust in that. And we are born again. And being born again, we have a living hope. So, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have a living hope to an inheritance. So, we're born again, and we have been given, or we have this inheritance, which we have not uh, obtained yet. So, for us who are saved here today, there is an inheritance awaiting us, but it is not an inheritance that we have realized yet. So, it's an inheritance which is uncorruptible, incorruptible, it is undefiled, and it does not fade away, it is reserved for us. Now, now this is really important. This inheritance that he gives us when we are born again is reserved for us in heaven, and nothing's going to happen to it. Nothing can touch it. It is reserved in heaven for us. That means it is awaiting our arrival. Now, this is interesting language here because the language of being born again and having a hope and having an inheritance is the language of a husband and a wife having a baby, a child born into the home who will carry on the name, the legacy of the family. All right, so um, my wife and I, we form a family and we have children and my sons and my daughters, they are a part of the household and, you know, we all kind of grow older and, and I build and establish the home and when my time comes to move from here to the presence of the Lord, I will pass that legacy, that inheritance on to them because they are my children. So this is the language that is being spoken of here. He begets us. He adopts us into his household. We are his children. He gives us a hope for the future, which includes an inheritance which is reserved for us. Now, if you want to bring in this idea of losing your salvation, um, especially the way that some, uh, some people talk about it, uh, you're, you're talking about uh, you know, being born again and having an inheritance and then losing that salvation so you're, you're, uh, you die or I don't know what happens there. You, you're spiritually unborn again, if that's possible. You lose your inheritance and so you go for a while uh, in that state as if you were unsaved until you're born again, again, uh, until you're saved again. Then you're born, begotten again. 
And then you receive the inheritance again. So, you know, if you're truly being saved and then truly losing that salvation, then this is repeated. But that is not the impression that is conveyed here. To believe in Jesus is to be born again and to have a, an inheritance reserved. Right? And the idea of reserved is, I haven't received it yet, but it's there for me. And nothing can change that. that. That's the whole idea conveyed in being reserved for me. And then, in verse 5, of course, you have we who are kept by the power of God. Now, there is really uh, just a strong language. We're talking about the power of God. What does the power of God do? He keeps us. The word keep means to guard. So, he guards us, he protects us, and he keeps us. So, it's it's like here we are, his children, and then we have his power, which, just for simplicity's sake or understanding's sake, he envelops us in his power, guarding us and protecting us for this salvation, for this inheritance that he has reserved for us. Uh, the through faith in there is thrown or a part of it, because remember, this is not, we're not robots, right? It's not like he just kind of plucks us out of the ground. Remember, there's this cooperative. Uh, relationship that's going on here. I have to have faith. I believe in him. And having believed, all of this takes place. And because of the works, work of God, all of this takes place. So the power of God keeps us, guards us, protects us to an inheritance which is reserved for me. It won't go away. It won't fade away. Nothing's going to happen to it. It is reserved for me in heaven because he guards, and protects me. All right. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8 for the next passage. This is Romans chapter 8. And this is a great passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 8. And we're going to look at the last part of the chapter there, verses 31 through 39. So this is the end of the chapter, Romans 8. And uh, let me begin. It says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? Now, this, this is, this is, these are verses that we can turn to and build up our confidence and our hope and our trust and our security in the presence of God. And I tell you, we really need that. Because... You know, there's all kinds of trouble out there in life that throws us for a loop and causes confusion and anxiety and stress and, and uh, discouragement. It's all around us. And if we have no hope that we can bank on, then we really are miserable. Um, or we can really be miserable as a result of that. But having the hope of God's presence for us is really significant in establishing us and and uh, giving us the security and the protection that we need. So, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? Amen? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect. Now there we see it. God's elect. This is a, this is a strong language here. 
the elect of God, the predestined of God, the created of God, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. There, there's just so many powerful phrases in this passage. I'm thinking of the, the woman. Do you remember the woman who was caught in adultery? So this woman is caught in adultery, and the leaders of Israel, they're just trying to, um, they're just trying to get Jesus, trying to trip him up. So this woman, she is caught in adultery, and the law says she must be stoned for her adultery. That's how serious adultery is, by the way. So anyway, they, they go and they take her, and they bring her out to Jesus, and they say the law says that we should stone her because of her adultery. She was caught in adultery. I always wondered, where, where was the guy in all of this? You know, why did they bring just the girl out? But anyway. So Jesus, he kind of writes in the, sta- in, the, in the dirt. Can you believe people, are, people try to figure out what, what was Jesus writing? <laughs> it doesn't tell us, so who knows, right? So he's just kind of maybe stalling for time or whatever, and they're waiting for an answer. And then he says, he says this, He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And then he goes back to doing whatever he was doing. And uh, he, here's, here's Jesus. He says, okay, we'll follow the law, but whoever is guiltless among you, let him be the one who casts the first stone. Well, of course, none of them were guiltless. And he looks up, and all of his, her accusers are gone. He says, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She says, no. And then he says this, neither do I condemn you. Because there was one there who could have thrown the first stone. And it was Jesus. And he didn't. He chose to forgive her. That's just amazing. It, is, it says in verse 34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is all, furthermore is also risen and is even at the right hand of God. He is the one who condemns, but he doesn't because he died for our sins. And if we believe, he forgives us and and does not cast that penalty upon us. He pays the penalty instead of us. So he is at the right hand of God, and not only does he not condemn nor judge us, but he is the one who intercedes for us. So he is no longer against us, but he is for us. He is on our side. All right. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So this is, this is great love. This, this is love we cannot understand. That Jesus, the sinless perfect one, the Son of God, would die for us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies. That he would die for us. That is love. Right? That, that is true love. To give your... You know, we might have love for someone who is part of our family or who we really love or is close to us. We might do something like that for them, but he did it for us when we were separated from him, when we were sinners, when we were his enemies. That is... That is love which we cannot grasp. Who can separate us from this love? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or peril of sword? As it is written, for your sake, 
We are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, we deserve this, the judgment. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from him. Now, there's another verse which we're going to come to at some point. Well, we're not going to get to it tonight. But uh, um, when it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that, that includes myself. I cannot separate myself. That includes me. So we'll come back to that idea uh, down the road a little bit. But this is a great, pa- great and powerful passage here which talks about his love for us and the work that he did for us in bringing salvation. Nobody can separate us from that love that he has had for us. So this is a, a very strong verse uh, to show that uh, we are secure in his presence. Here's another verse, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, remember, God is the creator. He is the one who has given us our eternal life. He is the one who has begotten us from the dead. We are born again because of the work of God. He began that work. And not only is he the creator, he is the sustainer. So he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, so he starts it and he continues with it all the way to the end. So God is the one who is doing this. Oh, here's, here's the verse. Sorry, I didn't have it highlighted, so I missed it. Let's go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Now, when I was first saved, I was um, part of a denomination that believed you could lose your salvation. So I would turn to a passage like this. I mean, this is one of those, this is one of those verses that uh, people who believe you can lose your salvation ha- use. Um, as, well, they have, to, they have to explain it or, you know, it's, it's just one of those that have to be dealt with. So John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. So I'll explain what my, my view was. When I was first saved, because, you know, I was being taught, I could lose my salvation. So in verse 25, Jesus answered and said to them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Because, as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So this is a pretty powerful verse, again, talking about belonging to Jesus, and he makes a distinction between those who are his sheep and those who are not his sheep, and those who are his sheep, he has given them eternal life, and they shall never perish. There's security in that Verse, Jesus could not say this if there is the possibility that one of his sheep would go and somehow get out of the Father's hand and die and perish and lose the salvation. He could not say this, but this is what he says. So my, my position was, okay, well, 
Nobody can take me out of my hand, out of his hand, but I can commit spiritual suicide and leave his hand myself. That, that was kind of my, my position when I was, I mean, that's what I thought when I was young and ignorant and a, a new believer. But um, I come to realize, well, you know, I mean, nobody being able to snatch, snatch me out of his hand includes me. You know, I mean, who am I that I could get out of his hand as if I could kind of squirm and get out of it somehow? That's not a possibility here. So, I give them eternal life, verse 28. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So another just great passage of Scripture here. Um, If you belong to Him, you have eternal life. You will never perish. That's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. All right, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, Being confident of this. Oh, I already already did this verse, so let's go on to the next one. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So this is a parallel verse to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. So Paul writes to the Philippians, and he tells the church there this truth. And here he's writing it to Timothy, and he's reflecting some of the same things Paul says, I believe in him, and I am persuaded he is able to keep me. And remember what that word keep means? To guard and to protect. To guard and to protect. So it's, it's uh, he's keeping me, he's holding me, he's guarding me, he's protecting me until that day. And this is the work of Christ in our lives. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. 18, I'm going to go to 20, but let me start with 18. It says, that two, by two immutable, that's unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Look, take some comfort in this. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So we are obtaining comfort and consolation because we are laying hold of the hope before us. And what is our hope? Our hope is Jesus Christ and the eternal life that we have in Him. That is our hope. So we can take comfort in that because we lay hold of this hope. This hope we have as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast. It enters the presence behind the veil. So this anchor, it's like not anchored down in the water. It's anchored up in the heavenly uh, throne where Christ is. The presence behind the veil where the forerunner, Christ, has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, now this is a great verse. We can have comfort in the hope of salvation. That belongs to us as believers. It is present for us. For those, if you remember when we first started this study, I shared with you the lady who really had a grasp on the idea of She believed you could lose your salvation. She really had a grasp what that meant. And she said, I don't, I I am scared because I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow, whether or not I will lose my salvation. She understood that and she was right. If I, if I felt that I could lose my salvation next year, right? 
If that was a possibility, I would be on edge. I would be nervous. Every time I sinned, I would, I would start thinking, is, is this the one that's going to tip me over the edge? Is this the one that's going to take me down a path that I don't want to go down? Is this the one? Have I fallen from it? And then, of course, you know, every time we sin and we're feeling really guilty, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I, you know, sinned a sin? Have I backslidden to the point I lost my salvation? And there's all of this turmoil. But this is not what this verse says to us. And, and interestingly enough, this is in the midst of one of the most difficult passages about losing your salvation. Hebrews chapter 6. If you look at some of the other verses, there, this is one of the difficult, most difficult for those who believe in the security of, of salvation. And yet, this is such strong language. And so, take hope, Christian brother and sister, in your salvation. If you have truly believed and have been forgiven, you can have comfort and consolation in your, your uh, relationship with Him. You have a hope that you can take hold on. Your anchor lies within the veil, and it is sure and steadfast. Nobody can move it or unhook it from there. So take comfort in that.